In about 30 seconds, you've taught us more about the podcast <laughs> audio stuff than we've known to date. So. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with John Cutler, who is a product evangelist at Amplitude, and he's going to tell us all about what that means exactly. Uh, So today we're going to talk about just-in-time research. So do you plan your research out years in advance according to an idealized roadmap of everything that will inevitably happen, or... Do we think about just-in-time research or something in between, and what does that look like? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So, John, thanks for being here with us. Awesome. I'm happy to be here. And then, of course, we have our other John-like person, John Henry. I am also here. Thanks for joining and uh, putting up with my uh, harassment to get you on the podcast via Twitter. So glad that worked out. It's The, the John-likes are... We can both be John-like on the, on the <laughs> exactly perfect, <laughs> fantastic. So, um, John, so tell me a little bit about what does being a product evangelist mean? What do you what do you do at Amplitude? You know, we actually struggled with the the title, and it's kind of a working title at the moment. But my my actual role is helping up level teams, regardless of whether they're using Amplitude or not. It's kind of a sweet gig, and so. What I'm evangelizing for is kind of best practices or education or continuous improvement for product development teams. And the evangelism part, I don't really need to even talk about our product. It's actually an analytics product. Um, It just tends to come up because teams have problems related to measurement or making kind of data-informed decisions. So sometimes it goes there, but I don't need to talk about the product explicitly. So I generally get to have fun talking to lots of teams. I think in the last couple of weeks, I've maybe spoken to 60 teams. So it's kind of a dream come true in terms of having an amazing sample now. So for the first time, I think I'm coming into my own where I can say, hey, if you look out there, you know, you tend to see this kind of cross-section of practices. So it's kind of amazing to to talk to that many teams. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm very jealous of a role like that. Have you seen teams in all these conversations? Like, is just-in-time research something people are already doing? Or is that kind of a, a pet idea that you'd like to see teams more of, you know, adopt more of? So it actually comes up a ton, and it's a spectrum in terms of what just-in-time means. So just-in-time for some people mean just-in-time to do our annual budgeting, right? And for other people, just-in-time means, hey, we're, we're kind of pulling in this effort, you know, in the next... Uh, you know, week or two, can you help set this up and and kind of jump in on jump in with it with the team? I'm kind of known. I, I have this thing that I talk about a lot called start together, work together, finish together, hmm. and starting together is a is a thing I'm really passionate about. And as a UX researcher, it was you know a highlight of my career, kind of launching in on these efforts together with the team versus kind of getting too far upstream. And I always kind of liken it in horror movie, you open up the door and all the people are kind of looking at the, the problem together for the first time. And that's like, that gives me such a rush individually working like that. But I think more practically as well, like you see such amazing things happen when the team kind of grapples with a problem at the same time. 
And, you know, contrast that with a situation, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I dealt with a PM who sort of eight months had been mulling over and planning something and then kind of coordinating with uh, UX research and coordinating with data science and building this business case. And it was never pulled in and they kept mulling it over. And by the time it kind of, quote unquote, got dropped on a team, all the life had been taken out of it. <laughs> there was no, there was no passion. There was no kind of opening up the door at the same time. So kind of long roundabout way of saying in these calls, you, you hear a, a ton of discussions about how far upstream to get things. A cross section of those discussions are with UX researchers and UX wondering about the specific problem for UX research, but it's kind of a broader problem on teams about what, what does starting together actually mean. Right. And I think, you know, agile is the new, how many letters? A-G-I-L-E, the five letter word, right? Um you hear about speed so much, but speed isn't really maybe the point so much as this, the synchronicity you're talking about, right? Where we are discovering and conversing and unfolding at the same time, such that the conditions of what we were trying to do haven't changed by the time we're taking action on them. Right. And, that, and I mean, that happens to every, you know, it's funny because I, I met with a, a UX research leader um, here in Santa Barbara, a, a company called Appfolio, they have a pretty established kind of UX research and, and design practice. And uh, I met with Lori there who heads up UX research and, you know, she sees it as kind of a portfolio of research efforts. And, you know, some of them are a little bit more forward looking, but interestingly at that company, even the forward looking things tend to be small cross-functional little teams kind of tackling it. And it's cross-functional in the sense that there's a founder of the company alongside a 22 year old first time designer and a developer and an experienced researcher. So even in that setting, when people are kind of getting upstream, there's still that level of like, I don't know what the word, yeah, synchronicity or serendipity or just sort of like, uh, you know, op- you know, discovering the problem for the first time. Yeah, I think the like cross-team collaboration as part of this seems like it is a lot of it, right? Like I think mm-hmm. when people... Um, throw shade at waterfall processes and stuff, you think of like the Gantt chart and you think of all these different rows and things moving, you know, left to right in these different steps. Um, But like the reality is you can't do everything all at once. Like things happen in different phases and and things move left to right. But it seems like the failure of waterfall in in those charts was that it was team one does step one and then hands it to team two and step two. And if you actually have the right people involved in the beginning and they move it, you know, through all those steps, it can work much better. I think, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, here's, you know, I, I wrote, um, something recently about sprints in general, and here's the irony for me about, um, design and sprints and, and the kind of agile, agita, <laughs> agile, agilada, <laughs> is that like, it's, um, designers have been working in iterative ways for a really, really long time. And the idea of kind of frequent integration, so think even like a design critique, you know, like, okay, we mm-hmm. meet, we, we crit these things, or, you know, the, the book about Pixar, uh, Creativity Inc., I think, you know, they talk about their mm-hmm. weeklies and they're kind of, you know, they're bringing together the story and they're, they're challenging each other and they're kind of getting down to it. Like, these things are age old. And the idea that the, the, the essential trait of waterfall is infrequent integration of ideas and perspectives and learning and technologies and assumptions and all those things. That's kind of the part and parcel um, element. And it's the idea that you go off and do your thing, go, uh, the other person go off and do their thing, and then at the end it will kind of all come together. You know, people often cite like, oh, well, you know, you, you can't build a building in an agile way, but actually – 
a building is kind of like an Ikea piece of furniture. Like you actually are integrating, right? Like that the structure wouldn't stand if the parts that you were building weren't somehow fitting together. So I know it's kind of high concept, but I think that the, for design and, and UX and UX research, kind of stepping back and saying, it's about the integration of ideas. And that's what characterizes doing that with a team of people and integrating where you're at. It isn't about shipping code necessarily every two weeks. It's the spirit of integration that actually defines working in this iterative way. And, and I would posit that for designers, it's actually the way we'd love to work. Hmm. The problem is, is that, you know, I have a friend here uh, in Santa Barbara. There's a company called Deckers and it's a shoe company. And when you design shoes, it's like an 18 month lead time. At a certain point, you need to design the shoes. And then it goes to mass production, right? Mm-hmm. And the the environment that we're in in software development done right, you know, has limit like amazing opportunities to iterate on things once they're out there. So I would I would say that it's much if we take a step back and imagine what we're doing is kind of like continuous design versus design then build it, and then we're doing it together with a cross functional team. It kind of opens up amazing you know, possibilities for designers. I'm, I'm like bullish on this whole thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I don't get agitated by it anymore. I love this um, phrase of continuous integration of ideas. Uh, how have you seen this work well in teams? How do you, uh, and obviously this touches on the larger kind of agile development topic, but how do you do this research just in time without it devolving into chaos, right? Continuous integration could easily become continuous. Wait, what are we doing? So how does it work? Well, I think that in this case, very specifically, it would be like the team creates a backlog of learning goals. And you don't want to spend three months with one learning in progress, only to find out that you were kind of answering the wrong question, right? (laughs) So you imagine like a development team is there and you have these kind of learning goals and you're like, well, you know, th- this, this first two weeks, like we really want to prioritize learning about this. And what's the best things at our disposal to learn about it? Do we need to write code? Probably not. You know, <laughs> do we need to maybe uh, try to sell this or get this out? Or do we need to talk to, you know, UX research brings a whole kind of quiver of best practices of how to answer questions. But at the same time, you know, the team is there too, and they're willing and able to participate. And so I think the way to, to, to prevent it from devolving into a free-for-all is creating that cadence and being very deliberate about your learning goals, how you intend to learn, and then w- what does that experiment around how you're going to learn look like, and then how are you going to reflect on it in, in a short period of time? I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on the benefit of this when a team is doing it, um, it feels like there's two things. One is the the learning is fresher, right? So you're learning and then you're doing something with it right after. So it's not like sitting on a shelf for two months because someone did it way upstream and contexts have changed or things have evolved or whatever, right? So that'd be one benefit. Whereas the other is kind of, because you're doing it that way, like the team morale is almost like higher in the sense of, we went out to learn this thing and now we're doing something with it. Whereas like when is yep. if you're a UX researcher and you go out and do this thing and you learn something really interesting and then nobody wants to do anything with it for two months, it's like not a great experience. Like as a, as a person, it's not like a very fulfilling feedback loop that, you know, you did this great work and you learned this really interesting, cool thing that should impact the product. And then nobody wants 
you know, everyone's like, wait, we'll get to it later. So like, Oh yeah, that's an amazing. So one thing I always thought of is like learning in, in essence is kind of really valuable inventory. Mm. And, and it sits there on the shop floor and it's like, it's only when it's kind of converted <laughs> or, ex- or like value is extracted out of it, that it actually feels great for everyone involved. And I kind of think that like, are you keeping, you know, I talk about, um, you know, planning inventory, change inventory, like organizational debt inventory, learning inventory. If all that stuff, you know, what tends to happen is if development is moving, quote unquote, slow, you see this wicked loop, they're moving slow. So people start making themselves busy with trying to plan all these things upstream. The organization is, is stressed because they're moving slow. So they keep asking for what this next thing is because they get stressed. Mm-hmm. And because it's slow, you also have time to like redo your priorities. So it's always changing. <laughs> and, you know, specifically to that thing, I think what happens with a lot of researchers that I've spoken to is they're so used to their stuff, not really providing value that they actually kind of regress back into what they can control, which is my research report was amazing. Right. You know, like that's what I love to do. I love re- it's the same thing with designers and developers. Like if, if someone's like, if you're so used to the quote unquote MVP being shipped and, and your sense of craft being assaulted, you're going to regret, you're going to regress isn't the word, but you're going to re- retract back into the area of craft you can control, right? Like this design is going to be amazing. Or, you know, this, this framework that we're going to use for technology is going to be amazing. So I definitely believe that you also get this weird thing where in, in lieu of that sense of impact, if you can't get that sense of impact, people retract in what they can control and you get like a real kind of retrenchment into craft. And I see that a lot in the design community. And, and it's hard when I see it because I know deep in their heart, they really want to see the impact of this stuff. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, I- these hardcore user researchers, you know, trained in the discipline and how, uh, they might want to do more proactive research plans ahead and have the big picture. And at the same time, there's this need in many organizations to maybe speed up and be more, you know, just in time with how the research is getting done. Do you find that it's the trained researchers that, uh, have a harder time? Oh Yeah. Doing fast research versus, you know, a product manager or UX designer or totally. yeah. somebody else. And I think that, you know, like I was talking to someone the other day and then he said like, well, we've got three PhD researchers on our team and like, that's actually a liability, <laughs> you know? Right. But, but, you know, the one thing is, is that I think that as long as the team is very open and transparent about the risks and what they need, like going back to this thing of involving the team, look, if you're stuck in the forest and you don't know where you are, and you've got someone who's like really good at climbing mountains and you're kind of like, Hey dude, like it would really help if you climb that mountain to take a look at what's going on. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to explore the river because we're really good at fishing and setting up camp. But could you, could you climb the mountain? That's completely yeah. fine. If a team does that, right? Like the, the, the problem is, is that they need to integrate like, Hey, go up to the top of the mountain and then try to come back down in two or three days to let us know where you're at. So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong even with the big batch kind of things. And, and I think it's more like just synchronizing it with the team and making sure people understand the bets you're making around that research. Right. Because if the, the point, right, you were saying before, if we don't ship anything, that's fine as long as we're on the right road. If the point is to kind of be on the right road or to get on the right road and user insight is a way to do that. Right. 
how do you get the right backlog of learning questions and prioritize them right if you aren't on the right road yet to get on the right road? And because it does balance long-term and short-term research, right? Inevitably to, to get on that right road. And how do your hardcore researchers and your, um, you know, UX and PM folks work together to make that happen? So I think that the, I, I use a kind of I use a device that's, I don't know, maybe someone say it's kind of negative, but I just try to say like, what, what do we want to make sure happens and what do we want to prevent happening? So this is like an activity I do with teams and -hmm. it's just basically like, um, you know, what, what are we trying to optimize for here? Like we're designing our process and what do we want to make sure happens and what do we make sure that doesn't happen? And what's the, what is the inherent tension in this problem? And I actually find designers are pretty good at that Yeah, and people are pretty good at it. And so it's kind of, I, I really love the idea of people co-creating how they work and I, I'm really passionate about that. And then I, I see that like, I see that when you frame it that way as an experiment, like how you're working, it opens things up. But I think how this relates to the more experienced designers is that I think when you just frame the question of like, what don't we want to see happen? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe the experienced designer will say, well, you know, I actually don't mind if I do three months worth of work and none of it gets used. Hmm. You know, like we took a, we took a bet on it and I actually have enough bandwidth now and it's okay. <laughs> like we do, you know, we have a whole research team and some of our research is more just in time and other is sort of, pro, you know, prospective big batch kind of research. And we need both if we're going to innovate, you know? And so, you know, developer will be like, well, that's good, but you know, we need you to be available because we want to be able to talk to you. You're like, oh, okay. Well, we need to come up with something where I'm available and I'm able to do these things. Okay, all right. That's my balance. Um, the next person will say, you know, we don't want to keep chasing the local like maximum. Like there are insights with our customers that someone needs to spend a lot of deep time with them to figure out, even if we don't use them. Oh, great. Okay, you know. <laughs> so I think that the the main thing is, is like when you talk about it like that, it becomes much more you become much more transparent as opposed to what I see on teams, which is a very dogmatic battle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you guys don't care about research at all. Um, and, and, you know, we just, just do crap. And, and then the other team's like, well, you don't care about us and you're not available and you're in meetings all day and you're not sharing anything that you're learning right now. And we have no idea what you're working on. You know, like it's all very contentious. And I think if you just back away, it's actually not, there's no silver bullet and you just have to back, back up as a team and say, well, what, how, what are our working agreements right now? Yeah, I love that. I think it's think hard. It causes so much grief, right? Just, we actually, maybe we aren't on the same page. So let's start with that and understanding why we aren't on the same page, but just what does happiness look like for this person or success or fulfillment and not, and what does it not look like? And yeah, as opposed to this person hates research or doesn't respect my work or they're stuck on waterfall or whatever assumptions might go into something that actually is not the case at all, but rather, um, we just need to get on the same page about what success is going to look like for us. Hopefully. I see this in the design community and in some of the design ops community. And I don't know how much, I haven't really followed research ops, so I I don't really know too much about it. Although it's a thing. It is a thing. It's a thing. Just, um, I, I know. I saw the diagrams. <laughs> it's, like, it's totally a thing. Um, you know, where someone asked me internally, what is product ops? And I was like, oh, geez. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, like I feel that in, in some of these communities, there's like a defensiveness. And I think it actually isn't a good look 
<laughs> like it comes really? off as being very antagonistic because certain people are working in organizations that are very antagonistic. So it's like a defense. It's a react. It's reactionary instead of visionary. And I don't like that. Yeah. I have a, a real pet peeve when people start doing the like Venn diagrams of product versus UX and carving out uh, specific tasks that one does and the other doesn't do it. Cause it feels very territorial versus yeah. just like you have different skills. I have different skills. Like why don't we just work together? And like, you know, our situation will be different than some other team's situation. We don't need this like gold stamp coming down from on high of, you know, UX always does this and product always does this. It, it of feels course, like it sets the wrong tone. There's a reason for it though, right? Like <laughs> I totally agree. But at the same time, who's going to do this kind of stuff or who's going to do it today or tomorrow or next week so that everything's getting done and we aren't duplicating efforts, right? I mean, I think that's, that's a good intention. I think that's where the skills inventory, I, I mean, I'm, I, I think that we belittle expertise in our, in this area. There's so much sort of cross-functional work and like, you know, people, there's all this sort of T-shaped person thing and I get it, but mm -hmm. I think that if you actually say, you know, a great example, I was at Zendesk and we had very, we had a problem that involved, uh, you needed someone who really knew a lot about just uh, mobile UX. You needed someone who actually knew a lot about search usability. <laughs> you needed someone who knew a lot about the domain space for what's being searched. You need people who understood like, are experts in what you need to do in the back end to make that possible. You needed people who are experts in the agent actor and the goals that they needed. You needed someone who was a real expert at workflows related to support. <laughs> you, you know, like it, are the, the problems we're tackling in our companies are you need, you need lots of skills, right? And I think that it's like, I think that you also need the expertise of kind of sharing that and spreading it and, and, and building support for it. So that's like an expertise you need as well. But I think that I, I am an advocate for T-shaped people um, in these environments because of the nature of the problem. Like you, if you get too many experts siloed away, that doesn't, you know, that, that isn't that great too. But I, I don't think we talk enough about, you know, the, the, areas and expertise and the hats that we need to wear to be good. So I think that building a healthy, a way to have a healthy discussion about that is good. The other thing is it's one thing to tell someone that you're an expert at something and it's another thing to show them you're an expert at it. So when I was, you know, doing the UX research thing and I facilitated like a design studio, it was the best thing in the world when, you know, the designer would say, oh my God, like, these people are so smart. Like they're actually pretty good at thinking about design and they, they brought so many interesting technical variations that I hadn't thought of. And then the developers there are saying like, yeah, that's why that person is doing that. <laughs> like I'm always putting my dots on Lenka's drawing all the time, you know? And like that, that I think that's very, very different than having like a, you know, battle of the silos situation, um, showing yeah. versus telling. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree that there is very different and unique expertise that's like 100% needed in the showing versus telling goes a long way. Um, that all makes sense. When we, uh, just to circle way back to the kind of earlier part of the conversation, we had talked about the kind of consequence of doing research that doesn't get used and kind of, you know, it going stale or people getting frustrated about that or, or whatever. Um, and then you kind of got into, there are different types of, of research, obviously, right? There is like this big picture trying to find a new, uh, like optimal point at a broader level, which is almost like roadmap research, right? Or 
really like bigger picture stuff. And then there's the more like usability kind of in the weeds, like we're working on this thing and we need feedback right. to make it better. Um, I think it's like probably important to separate those two out, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're doing the big picture type stuff and the discovery, um, you might learn stuff that you quote, quote unquote, don't use, but you're using it in the sense of you're deciding not to prioritize something and to prior some, prioritize something else instead, which is like hugely valuable and really important. Right, right, and right. So, it, so it is getting used. Whereas if you're doing you know, more granular usability testing on a screen two months upstream. And then by the time the developers touch it, the screen is way different. Like that doesn't get used. And that is kind of like waste and loss. So like there probably is some nuance there, right? One thing, one tool I like to use is like what information would the team buy if they controlled a budget, you know, like to frame the effort hmm. and those big picture things like, like, you know, like some company was trying to prioritize like some stuff on the backlog. And I was like, would you spend a million dollars to get a piece of information now? And they're like, you know what we would, because there's like, there's, there's 15 things on the backlog that all relate to this. And this other thing is here. And, and we don't know whether blank, blank, blank is, is the right thing. <laughs> and, and this was kind of ironic because they couldn't get enough budget to hire like one more researcher. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, so seriously, like if Forrester could give you the $1 million report, you would buy it. And they're like, yeah. I was like the total. I was experiencing complete cognitive dissonance, right? Like, oh, that's super fascinating. But back to that big picture thing, you know, I think that this this relates to having crystal clear conversations about uncertainty and what you want to learn up and down the the sort of the tree of these efforts. And I think that is where you know what some might regard as this kind of upfront or upstream research, where it very well may be the exact right investment to make to learn that particular thing, um, provided that learning actually drives that decision, <laughs> right? Like the decision, I always say that product development is about decision quality and decision velocity. And so information, you know, sense-making, flow, focus, support, all those things encourage high quality decisions and fairly fast decisions or appropriately fast decisions. So if you can kind of visualize that, I think it, it means that you are in a world where you, you don't even need to call it like upfront research. It's just decision support. <laughs> and I think decision support can be very valuable. For sure. And it seems like the challenge with a lot of that is getting that longer time horizon upstream insight into the right hands at the right time, because you do right. lose some of that when you're doing this just in time stuff, which is the nature of it is that the people who need to know are going to know and they're going to know fast and they're going to do something with it. Yep. I think, you know, and that's obviously, I mean, that's a completely different episode, but I think that's a lot of the challenge with that kind of research is it exists maybe somewhere, someone in some department did it, but right. where is it and how do I nuggetize it or access it and is nuggetize. it true yeah. that's awesome nuggetize yeah. that could be a button in like a product yeah. like nugget nugget nug. <laughs> one thing that you bring up i think that's really important here is the framing of the mission has a lot to do with this so what i mean by that is if a team tackles a mission of like three to six months a real mission like a meaty problem an opportunity that they're going to extract value out of then a lot of these certain coordination challenges or how far up front you get and all these things actually actually starts to make sense because you're kind of viewing work in in at a resolution at that level that makes sense. I think that where you see problems is where you go from that level of work, but all the teams understand is very prescriptive levels below that. 
They think in terms of screens. They think in terms of like this one little experience. So an example would be at a company like the mission would be, you know, make account reconciliation blazing fast for our enterprise customers. You know, like that's a great mission. You know, it's like, you know, and, and the why, you know, you could fill in the why there, but the why would be, you know, error-free reconciliation or, you know, leave them time for strategic thinking, whatever mission level you want. The nice thing about that is it gives the researcher just the right kind of scope to do, to tackle a meaty problem and the team, the scope to tackle a meaty problem. And then the need for the, uh, the need for the supporting research to kick that, like that's the type of mission that you might spend two weeks just hands off of keyboards as a team tackling together. The minute that you're playing Tetris with teams with two week, four week, one week, like that level of work, no one has time to breathe. So I, I don't know if that made sense, but basically like when you're framing the work at the right resolution, mm-hmm. it opens up wonderful opportunities for people to approach these things in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I think it's the same as it happens on the micro scale in the sense of like, you just need to set the right constraints, right? Like when you're trying to uh, break down a problem uh, in screens and you take this part and you take this part, um, you're not trying to dictate the solution of like how the code's going to be written or how it's going to be implemented. You're just trying to give people a focus. And in that case, it's pretty narrow because you're, you're trying to hope, you know, get it done in a few days and it's pretty specific. But what you just described on the mission level is like, you're just setting constraints at a much higher kind of elevation, um, but you're still giving the team room to go play and be creative within those constraints, right? Like, I think there's some similar yeah. uh, attacks there, just as a different scale. And I think that, you know, one thing as I really preach about is just coherence. Like, I'll do exercises with act, uh, with teams, and they'll be like, yeah, there's just two levels of work. There's kind of like the epic, and then there's stories, or what, you know, whatever technique they're using. And I'm like, are, are there really just that many levels? And then I'll just talk about the company as a whole. And I use this method called ones and threes, which is kind of like, I I ask the team to just map one to three hour bets all the way up to one to three decade bets for the company. One to three hours, one to three days, one to three weeks, one to three months, one to three quarters, one to three years, one to three decades. And what's really fascinating is that there's this messy middle of work decomposition and this is what drives from when, when I was doing UX research, this is what drove me crazy because it was very ill-defined. Like there was high-level stuff that the company believed in, and then there was kind of the low-level tactical stuff. And I couldn't like really understand what this middle layer of work is. And I think that when you're doing this correctly, you you, you know, there's this old thing about like simplicity is great, right? But we want to use the appropriate levels of simplicity. And I think opting for 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 more coherent work decomposition, actually, if you can have that roadmap there as a researcher, you can you can pick your level more appropriately. And to your point, it, again, it's kind of all pretty fractal. You know, like you can you go down. It just helps you visualize where you need to do your work. Um, and that's that's a kind of more producty thing. But I think that it's something that as as a researcher, you can kind of urge your team to move in that direction. Like, hey, it looks like we're oversimplifying the the breakdown of this work? And, and could you be more clear about this messy middle of the mission? Hmm. To the messy middle. To the messy middle. I don't know. Yeah. Is that what we want to say on the podcast? Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll go there. <laughs> no, but it is. It's kind of like, so the one, one thing I learned as a UX researcher was you occupy this really odd place. Like you talk to lots of people. You're kind of in the middle of the organization, but sometimes you don't really feel like you're on a team. 
And it's like you see you're a canary in the coal mine because you kind of see the, 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 the machinations of the business, the politics of the business, the bureaucracy, and you're expected to kind of navigate it. And, and, and you're, if there's a lack of vision, you feel it first, mm. you know, and, and I think that's the same way for product management, but I think that it's a, it's especially hard when you're a researcher, because if, if there's a problem, you'll see it, you'll know about it actually. You're good to ask because, you know, you've been in a dedicated uh, research role and and have not been. And so that's good. What do you um, what do you love about user research? What I when I did UX research, what I really, really loved. Was taking the team along on the discovery adventure. I know that sounds I mean, I know there's variations of the role, but what I got into the company that I did this at, that was my role. And so I don't have like, you know, I talk to a lot of UX researchers, so I know that other versions of the hat exist, but that really was great. I loved that because I loved being there as kind of like a guide and having great tips and tools and techniques available for the team. And then watching like everyone, like watching them learn was exciting. Mm. So, you know, I don't know, there's other researchers who have very different things that, that, uh, you know, turn them on. <laughs> that was what, that's what got me excited to come to get to, to, to come to work every day. Nice. Um, I don't know how quick this will be, but I'll, I'll try to throw it in. Um, the thing I think about a lot with like learning in general is kind of like the asymmetry of feedback you get. Cause you set out and you're like, Hey, there's this thing we want to learn more about. And you probably have some bias that you hope it's true or whatever. Um, and so when you go out and you learn that it's true, it's kind of like high fives and pats on the back and be like, cool, like, let's go do it. Um, and that's great, but you don't ever really like look back at it and, and critically evaluate, like, could we have learned it faster? Um, could we have yeah. done something that was lighter, you know, in terms of getting the same data? Whereas if you go out and you learn that the idea that you were interested in is a bad one, you, you know, there is some like retrospective and digging into why that was the case, but it still is uncomfortable to like talk about the fact that that wasn't a good idea. And so... Right you don't like learn how to learn, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Cause like, there's not a great right. feedback loop there. Have you seen people find ways to get over that? Well, I think there's, there's this great book, you know, thinking in bets by Annie Duke, which is kind of interesting. She's a, a poker player mm -hmm. and talks about kind of decision quality and, and forming a group of people to inspect your decisions, just like what on using a number of heuristics, like what did we know at the time? And I don't see this a lot, but I wish I did. This idea of kind of like, hey, let's review the last like 10 decisions we made around research or, you know, let's, it, I see retrospectives as something that happens like on the team level. And frankly, a lot of people don't even do anything about what they retrospect on and they just kind of kvetch and they just sit there and it just is what it is. They're just going through the motions. But I think that, I think that idea of kind of looking at decision quality, uh, regardless of the outcome, like, can we go and look at our decision to do this? Did we like match the appropriate methods to the question? You know, this is how I did this analysis. Oh, interesting. And that could be improved. I wish I saw that more <laughs> because I don't think, I don't think people do that en enough. I think there's so much pressure on the day to day and I mean, I've had like senior people say, well, why would we ever do that? That's just looking back and it's just like, that's just dragging up old laundry. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I kind of think that it's like, I think that in a functioning research practice, like if you were, you know, like Lori here in, in Santa Barbara, who I was talking to or other things, they've kind of gotten to that level where they do take that seriously. Like, 
we're going to critique how we went about doing this and see if we could improve it. Yeah, totally. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you see it in athletics. Like, you know, if you run yeah. a personal best or something, but you realize after the fact that your first split was your fastest and your last split was, split was your slowest, you're going to do some analysis to be like, oh, if I had evenly paced that, I probably could have gone even faster. You know what I mean? So um, I think there are a lot of good examples elsewhere that we can continue to kind of like lean on and draw from. Yeah. I'm a big thing of like Checklist Manifesto. I think that's an interesting book, but it's like, the problem with this kind of retrospective is I think people feel it's so heavy and so painful that they don't do it. And remember, I was thinking like, if it hurts, do it more often, <laughs> right? So, but the question would be, what are six questions? What are six qu checklist questions you can just go through? Could you even start there in terms of talking about your prior decisions? And I think that that kind of opens up some options um, if you if you do it at that level. So it does. this does not need to be a big heavyweight thing uh, when you do it. Cool. Um, well, thanks for joining us. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.